So today's part two. Uh, last week was part one. And let me just tell you kind of my lead in, and then we're going to pray and kind of jump into it. Um, have you ever felt pathetic? I mean, I mean, like, honestly, have you ever felt pathetic? Yesterday I felt, I really felt pathetic. I, I mean, have you ever fasted? Anyone raise your hand if you fasted? You're like, wow, that's amazing. Um, fasting does something really interesting. It makes you, like, gets you in touch with your weakness. And when you're, like, weak, then all of a sudden you go, wow, I really need God. Like, I mean, it makes the spiritual stuff seem like that much more desirable, like apparent, all sorts of things. Um, having four kids and never sleeping, it's like you're on a continual fast. You're like sleep deprivation and, and stress and noise at all times. Like it's, it's, it's like a form of torture and it brings you into this fasting state that, that you exist in and you become really pathetic. And uh, <laughs> I mean, yesterday I just, I, I was just like, man, I don't even feel likable. Like I just have so little energy to give to anybody you know, or to even, like, be happy or whatever. Like, I was like, I just I feel pathetic and unlikable. Um, and so at first, that was really depressing. You know, it was even worse. Like, I, um, who, like you, everyone has, like, a nightmare, right? Like, your, your nightmare that happens over and over and over, like, every month or every couple months, whatever, like, the drowning one or whatever it is. I mean, do you guys have that? You want to know what mine is? And it's because I, I went, I, like, I was in a fraternity when I was in college. I got saved at 22. And, and so uh, when I pledged for a fraternity, like, I dropped down to three classes and almost failed out. And, like, half my pledge class did fail out. So this, and I was in engineering. Um, so it was really stressful. And I had these really stressful meetings with professors. And I failed all these tests and, like, had to get, like, 90 or above on two finals just to, like, pull my grade. I mean, it was just really stressful. And then you had to lie to your parents the whole time, telling them, like, that it was school that was, was really hard, not everything else you were doing. Um, it was really emotionally taxing. And uh, my nightmare that I have, I've, I've had it my whole adult life, every, like, you know, month or every other month, or if I get really, my body gets really fatigued or something like that night, all night long I'll dream about, um, it's the last week of school, I'm failing out of college, and there's nothing I can do. Like, I haven't showed up for class for three months. And, like, there's no way. I don't even know where some of my classes are. And, like, I mean, I live inside that nightmare all night. <clears throat> Yesterday was, like, so pathetic that last night, that's, I had that dream again, that nightmare. And I wake up so emotionally exhausted and have to remind myself, like, I did graduate. Like, <laughs> I just, okay. Because, you know, I wake up emotionally there, like, you know, like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Like, I've, I've failed out of college, and then I, I, oh, you know, I have kids, I have a job, okay. Um, where am I going? Um, the, the idea is this. Uh, it's nice when, when you feel messy, when life is difficult. I mean, there's, there's some of you out there at, at extremes that I don't even know. Um, facing health issues or life and death issues or financial issues. Or, I mean, there's, when, when it really is difficult and it's depressing, um, one, it's really great that we can come to church. I mean, this, this really is one of the reasons why God created church, to come together, to put God at the center, to encourage one another, and just to, like, escape for a minute and be together a, a group of people that have, have hope, and the second thing is that hope. It's, it's like, man, no matter how bad it gets, like the whole thing that makes us Christians is that we, we're not just about being spiritual. We actually have a hope. We have faith that, that it will get better. There's like somewhere we're going or that, that, that Christ is coming back, that, that this is just the prelude, that this is like a sinful, broken, fallen world that is like groaning, like all of creation groans and and we're kind of like hearing and identifying with and in harmony with that groaning and, and it's messy, but, but that's not the end of the story, you know? And so in some sense, like where I'm coming this morning is just as, as pathetic as I feel that that helps us and ought to help us get in touch more with why we're here, like, like why we do this, you know? So uh, if you'll pray with me this morning. Um, let's just get ready to, to open up and, and to try and reflect a little bit on, 
on what it is that makes us Christians. Father, um, yeah, I don't have many places in me to, to bring this, and, and I just pray for energy. I pray for strength. I pray for the people out there that need Sunday, that need Sunday morning, that need this, that need encouragement, that need you, that need church, that need hope. Um, I pray for them the most that this really would be something that would satisfy, that, that words or spiritual words or words of truth would, would go down and, and nourish. That, like Jesus said, I have, I have food that you know nothing about, that in some sense if we're doing your will, if we're seeking you, that that, that will fill us, that, that the core of who we are will somehow satisfy the ache, the loneliness, the pain, the doubts, the fears, uh, the hurt. So, Father, as we just try to turn our attention on you, I just pray you would honor that, that you would take what's weak on our part and strengthen it, that you really would meet us, that you really would just fill us and satisfy us this morning. May you get all the glory in Christ's name. Amen. If you will, um, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. It, you know, I struggled kind of all week with how to do this. This whole chapter in Luke really is about heaven and hell and, and eternal stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very long chapter. It gets up into like 50-something verses. And it's really all about the eternal, these big eternal questions and situations. And, and it's almost impossible to get up on Sunday morning and just read a lot of Scripture. I mean, it, it's just hard to do it that way. And so uh, how, how do we tackle this whole thing without having to read the whole thing and that kind of thing? So bear with me. I'm just going to kind of like summarize some chunks of it and then jump us into certain parts um, to help us kind of grasp what's going on. But we're just going to take it straight through. But in the beginning of Luke, Jesus kind of gets this whole thing going. And then in verse 4, he says this. He says, I tell you the truth, my, my friends. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And then, he, and then he goes on and says that God that knows like sparrows and can count like hairs on your head, things like that, that God that knows you, like fear him. And, and it talks of hell here and, and we're not going to, we don't have the time to kind of get into that, but it sets a backdrop for us of seriousness that I think is missing sometimes. We were fond of, of just taking the, the happy part of this whole discussion and kind of fixating on that, and, it, and we're not really fond of, of dealing with a really awkward topic with a lot of baggage, you know, called hell. Um, but Jesus kind of opens with that, and what it does is it, it should sober us up and bring us to this conversation and realize, man, there's, there's like a lot riding on this. This is a pretty huge deal, like it's heaven and hell, eternity weighs in the balance, and when you think of ways, the picture is scales, and it's kind of this either or, and and when we come to this, there's a, there's a, you have to be sober-minded in some sense. So then Jesus goes on, and he talks about this parable, the parable of the rich fool. And he, he talks about this, and I just want to read the whole parable. He, he, uh, he says this, The ground of a certain rich man produced, this is verse 16, produced a good crop. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there will I store my, all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. And then you will get what you have prepared for yourself. And this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. So you see here this picture of this, this agricultural guy that's had this bounty, which is really money, okay? It's, 
it's a, it's a lot of resources that's come in. And he said, wow, that's pretty cool, and I can't even fit it all in my barns. What should I do? Ah, I'll build, I'll build bigger barns to store all this grain, and, and that's like a worthwhile project of building the bigger barns, and then I'll store all this up. And I, had a th- I have a thought in my head. I don't know if we're going to bring it in or not. But, um, and, he's, and that's wise, right? Yeah, it makes sense. It's logical. Uh, you know, I'm being blessed. Let me just capture this blessing and build bigger and build bigger. And then, and then all of a sudden, um, he's, he's that night. His life's demanded from him. And it's like, uh, you chose poorly. You could have been investing and laying up treasures in heaven in some sense and, and following God and being rich with the kingdom and trying, instead of trying to be rich on this earth. And he wanted to really sit back. His motivation here is not like a godly investment. It's like sitting back and saying, because of all this money, I can take it easy and just eat, drink, and be merry. And God says, you are a fool. You are a fool. Um, how much better if you had to take in that blessing and realized that there's this eternal thing going on and invested that into eternal things. Um, and then if I had demanded your life from, from you tonight, you would have already been like starting what it is you were supposed to be starting all along, like this, this unifying purpose and focus with me. The thought I had come into my head was, wouldn't it be interesting if churches <laughs> didn't always have to build bigger barns? Maybe, maybe a church's life is sometime going to be demanded from them that night. And, and instead of always building bigger and bigger barns to hold bigger and bigger things, like, I'm not saying it's always wrong, but it's just a thought in my head. Um, so here's something I want to say. Eternal life has already begun. This guy thought, I'll, I'll live this life, wait till I die, and then when I die, eternal life is the next part. It's, 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 it begins then. And what God is saying, like, you fool, like, eternal life has already begun. Like, your decisions are already eternal decisions. And your life, in some sense, is already an eternal life because I'm holding you accountable then for what you do now. It, it begins now. So John 17, 3, it's kind of a famous verse. This is what Jesus says kind of in his prayer before he dies. He says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We, we get into this, this idea of arguing about heaven, like, where is it? Is it here? Is it there? Is it a place? And, and, and it's so much deeper than that. And Jesus is like, eternal life is this connection, this life with God. It's, it, that's when eternal life begins, when you're born again by the Spirit. And that happens during this lifetime. Your, your eternal life has already begun. You're, we're eternal beings. Um, there's a, a Lewis quote in The Weight of Glory where he talks about um, there, you've never met a mortal creature. If we really understood who people are, that ultimately one day they're growing into like angels that are so magnificent that if we saw them now, we'd fall down and worship them. Or they're growing into like these devils that are twisted and like, it's so hideous that we just run in terror or horror that, that all people, in some sense, are heading to one direction or another, but you've never met a mortal being. We're all eternal beings. That if we really realize that, like the way we treated people um, would be so different. Eternal life begins in this life. Um, George MacDonald, who was C.S. Lewis's mentor, said this. He said, we're in a bad habit of talking about people who die. We say when someone dies that he has died and his soul goes to heaven. What we should say is his body has died and he went to heaven. C.S. Lewis picked up on the same thing and he says this, You don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. It's, it's an interesting thing. The question I get most, one of the questions I get most is really, you know, what are you going to be doing in heaven? Like, you know, in that place, what do we do, like, for time or, or, or passing the time? Or, I mean, it just seems like an awful long stretch, you know. I mean, how are we going to fill that? <clears throat> and in some sense, like, those are the questions that Jesus got, too. You know, there was people that came to him and said, hey, Jesus, 
like in heaven, because in that culture, if you had a wife and you die, um, your brother needs to take your wife. And it's, and it's not some twi- twisted thing. It, it was, there was no welfare. There was no social security. There was no government programs. It was, it was, it was a, a covering of, of taking care of this person's life and, and providing for him. And, and so they come, they say, here's this woman, her husband dies, brother takes her, you know, that husband dies, next brother takes like three brothers. You know, so well, whose wife is she going to be in heaven? And Jesus is like, yeah, there's, there's wrong question. Like in heaven, there's not going to be marrying in heaven. You know, and so Jesus was dealing with those questions too. What's it going to be like in heaven? And he's like, no, in heaven, there's not going to be some of these things that there are now. And so it brings up this whole kind of reality deal. But the problem we have more than any other is we think of heaven as this ethereal, like, place in outer space with, with, with little angels with wings and clouds and harps. And, and I don't have time to go into it, but the Jewish view of the afterlife was a new heaven and a new earth with, with a resurrection body. It was much more this idea of, of resurrected bodies like being new crea- creations in some sense that weren't going to pass away. But it's much more organic than just like floating around in, in nowhere. Um, and when you see that whole idea, and Jesus' res- resurrection is supposed to be what's called the first fruits of that. that. He's the first one. There's fruit of what God's plan is. For, for the idea of resurrection, and that was Jesus after he died. And that someday there will be a, a time where we are all resurrected and, and like Christ that way. And, and what I mean to say by this is simply, you're not your body. You're not your body. You are your soul. You are this thing that God is able to resurrect and put into a resurrection body. Um, it's, it's different than the way we talk. I'm going to die someday and... And then, well, then what is it that then goes to heaven? It's like, no, um, I am my soul. My body is this thing that my soul is housed in. And eternal life has already begun. Like these eternal things exist. And the reason they're so important is they're not like side questions. Um, I'm, a, I'm an eternal being. You're an eternal, we never met mortal creatures. And so these eternal questions are huge and they weigh on us. And we have to take them into account. And so the first thing is simply this, eternal life has already begun. Second thing is this, um, you need to have an eternal perspective. Jesus continues on, he says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they do not sow or reap, they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable... You are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? And then he goes on and talks about birds and he says, O ye of little faith, do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world, the people that don't have God, don't believe in God, the pagan world runs after all such things. And your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your, your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the first thing was the eternal life in some sense has already begun. The second thing is, We've got to have this eternal perspective. This is passing away, but that's okay, because this is more important. And so live this, trusting that God will provide to get you through. Don't worry about everything. Don't stress about everything. But in your decision-making, in your choices, in your priorities, prioritize this, because it's so much weightier than this. You, you need to have an eternal perspective. And your faith, you of little faith, don't do what people who don't have a God do. If, if you don't have a God, there's nothing to have faith in. Nobody's going to take care of you. You have to look out for yourself, right? So if you're acting the same way, you, you have very little faith or you have no faith at all. You say you have this God that's going to do this thing, but in your actions and the way you see the world, you act the same way 
as people who have no God. You have little faith. Don't do that. Have this perspective and store up for yourself treasures in heaven because what you're focused on, what you're fixated on, what you value, what you prioritize, that's going to be your treasure. If, and we could take this, and, and you guys know it to be true, and we could like break it down oh so simple, but whatever you obsess on becomes your addiction. Um, you can get addicted to anything. I mean, anything. I know, like I've been watching CSI, like, it's like one episode finishes, and they don't even give you a commercial. It goes straight to the night, like on, on Spike, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, it goes straight, no commercial. It goes straight to the next one. I can do like four hours at a time. I, like, I'm working at the same time on my laptop. I'm like, no, so don't think I'm just sitting there. Um, <laughs> my point is, though, like it's there, and whatever you obsess on, anything you obsess on can become an addiction. Why don't we make God an addiction? You know, it's hard. Like, sometimes you hear sermons, well, what am I supposed to do with that? Practically speaking, when I go home, what do I do? Look, make God your addiction. It's really not hard. Obsess on God. Like, I don't care how you do it. I don't care what you do it with. I don't care who you do it with. But it all boils down. Everything we talk about, week in and week out, it's not about waiting on me to give you a step or, or a or a little hurdle to jump, or, or whatever. It's just obsess on God. Put God first. Seek His kingdom first. Prioritize this. Let your heart like be, be enamored with this idea. And the more you dwell on it, and, and of course it's going to show up in prayer, and in reading Bible, or joining a small group, or, or just doing solitude, or fasting. It's going to show up in so many ways. But the idea is, you are locking your mind onto God, or talking to God, or spending time with God, or learning about God, and you obsess about it. And it will affect everything in your life. So, so like, look to heaven, and put your treasure there, have this eternal perspective, and, and don't care about these other things. And it's not that you're just going to get hosed. Like, God will take care of you. That's the trust part. So get up obsessed here. Look here. Have a perspective here. Think about the eternal. Um, and let God take care of the rest. If I, like, five people. I need, like, five extroverts that just get bored unless they can jump up, like, on stage. So five people. Okay, I can't take all ten of you. Like, five but just, just run up here real quick. You're just a guinea pig. It's all, it's all good. I don't have any water, whipped cream, or anything like that. So, Cash, it's because he hasn't gone to Disneyland. He just he needs to fill his time with other things. Um, so I have five. I can do it with four. Four works. Five. Okay, this is just simple. Um, so kind of, I guess I can do it with four. Um, so kind of round or five. So I want you guys to kind of round around, like, like a horseshoe. The horseshoe. You got five, okay. So if I put this in the center, okay, that's in the center. What are you guys going to fixate on or talk about um, or be kind of focused on? What's objective? Chair, okay. Um, you who are struggling with health problems, um, if I put, put heaven and hell or the eternal in the center, you're thinking, how do these health problems relate with the eternal kind of questions going on? If you're dealing with money, it's very prophetic. The, the, uh, <laughs> you're going you're gonna to analyze those in light of the eternal. Um, if you have a hard time getting friends, you're going to take and analyze that <laughs> in terms of, of the eternal and, and whatever it is here, you're gonna, your trials and your pains, you're going to analyze that in terms of the eternal because it's the thing that's at the center that we're all kind of talking about. It's, it's, it's so central to our faith that everything else is held up in light of that. They're set in relief against that. Does that make sense? Okay. Here's what we've done in Christianity. We've taken the eternal or heaven and this kind of stuff and we've put it on the periphery over here. It's about objective realities. It's, it's the eternal questions. It's heaven and hell. It's, it's objective. And we put it outside the circle. We put it over here on the periphery. So we may or may not ever get to it in church, in our small groups. Like we may or may not talk about heaven and hell and eternity. Um, what we've done instead, there's like another chair here. We'll put this. 
is we put this in the center. So there's something else we've put in the center of the Christian community that's now central to everything that we're going to analyze everything against. And this is like, may or may not come up because it's on the periphery. Do you know what we've put in the center? You guys really, I mean, there's probably a lot of right answers, so you probably don't know my right answer. Um, Here's what we put, but I I really, honestly, um, I'm right, okay? (laughs) We've put spirituality in the center. We put spirituality in the center. You want to know why we did this subtly? And it's been a, a, a back and forth between people and pastors, kind of back and forth, back and forth, slowly morphing somewhere. And our culture has slowly taken the church and brought us to a place, and we put spirituality at the center. And the reason we've put spirituality at the center is because everything reduces down in our American culture to experience. Experience. We are wired to analyze everything through our experience. Everything's an experience to us. And so spirituality, which is subjective, versus this kind of objective thing going on in conversation with heaven, we put it to center. And so now dealing with health issues, and, and it's like, well, maybe if you did yoga, it would, it would help your, like, stress level and help you cope um, with these very difficult trials. And, and, and it's all about spirituality can, can help you, your spiritual side. And, and your money, well, it's all about um, your prayer life because if you really were praying right and doing the spiritual thing right, God would have already opened up the treasure stores of heaven and he would have made you rich because that's what God wants to do. He wants to make everyone rich. Um, and uh, you, like... With no friends, like, it, you know, look, um, here's five steps to being a, a, a better person. And uh, here's how to win friends and influence people. Here's what God says about making friends. David did this. Saul did that. David was better at making friends than Saul. You, sh- you should be more like David. Um, and, and so we kind of take and we find the scriptures that said, you know, Jesus played hard to get. You should maybe do that. You know, like, we, we find these little principles that really have nothing to do with anything objective or eternal, but they're just little random things. Like, Jesus didn't come to play hard to get. But I could turn that into a sermon, you know? Don't give everyone what they want, you know? Like, hold to your values, and then, like, it'll, like, weed through everyone, and then the right people will come to you, and, you know, I I mean, you could turn anything into a sermon. So spirituality, you know, I forget what your problem was. Um, Spirituality. But, you know, (laughs) read this book. Um, there's, a, there's a book for everything. There's an answer to everything. Um, what you need to do is, is just um, go to more programs, more conferences, more things, and fill your life with more, more church, religious, spiritual stuff, and all that proximity around spiritual stuff, like whatever. And then this generation, like the younger generation, it's all about, for a lot of them, I don't want to make a huge generalization, it's all about the sense of the divine. It's, it's a real strong move back to ritual and tradition. And so if, if I can light the candles and if I can do these certain ritualistic things, it feels so much more ancient. It feels so much more spiritual. And I, I really like that feeling. I like that experience. And it doesn't matter. Like there's some of these things that are not bad. Okay, don't hear me. I mean, certainly the Bible talks about peace and the soul and, and our experience and different things like that. But do you understand what we've made the central thing that we hold in relief against everything else is our subjective experience right here and right now. And we've put the objective reality of eternity over here in the periphery. And this dominates our conversation. You guys can go ahead and, and be seated. See, I told you it wasn't really that bad. Um. So here's kind of what I want to come to with this last little bit. Um, it starts with this eternal perspective, and that, that flows right into um, the harshness. I'm not going to couch this for you in some fancy sentence. I'm going to just try and give you the essence, okay? It flows into the harshness, the brutalness, 
the realness of Jesus' words with regard to the eternal life. It gives us a picture of a masculine, strong, forceful, aggressive Jesus that we don't talk about a lot. We've made subjectivity kind of the thing of the day. So let me give you a little bit here um, leading into it, and then I'll kind of explain what I mean. So the part three of Luke here, the third part of Luke is this. Chapter 12, verse 35. It says, Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants who the master finds, finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or the third watch of the night. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house, um, let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So here's a house, you're a servant in the house. Be ready to be who you're supposed to be doing what you were told to do by the master. And you know what? Like if you knew what time it was going to come, you'd be so smart as to be ready then. I'm saying you're not going to know what time, so be vigilant, be industrious, be ready with what you're supposed to be doing kind of at all times. And Peter asks, hey, is this for us or is this for everyone? Who are you talking to, Jesus? I don't get the riddles, okay? And the Lord answers, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth. He will put him in charge of all his possessions. So the one that's faithful, like he does a good job, he's responsible, he works hard, that person gets promoted. We, we know this is a basic principle of life. And Jesus is just saying, that guy who I get excited about, he's doing what I want done, I'm going to affirm that and elevate that. I got four kids and my oldest is just now getting to that stage where like, I'm like, oh, sweet, like get a little help. You know, like she, she does cool things that she knows we want. And you like that, right? And you want to affirm that and, and like make it bigger, you know? We got a weave for the kids for Christmas and Tamara was making fun of me last night. She's like, okay, you got to let them learn how to play this without trying to help them. Because when I try to help them, like I stand behind them and I grab their hands and the little Wii remote and I get like, I, I show them exactly how to do it. Cut here, start at the bottom, go this way. And then I let them do it and they don't do anything I say at all. They just go spastic with it. And, and I get really frustrated. You're not listening to me. Like, that's not what I said. And Tamara's like, okay, you just got to let them figure it out. And, and then you can play. Um, <laughs> play the Wii. We don't like it when people don't do what we've asked them to do. Especially if it's important stuff. And people that ought to be able to do what we ask them to do, and it's important stuff, it's doubly frustrating if they don't do it. And Jesus is like, look, um, the master who leaves you in charge um, thinks that's a big deal. And you're the servant, that's the master. You ought to be able to do it. Okay? If you don't do it, um, the master's going to be really, really frustrated. Let me give you that piece. Um, Verse 45 of chapter 12 in Luke. But su suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And then he begins to beat the men's servants and the maid servants and to eat, drink, and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of and he will cut him to pieces and assign to him a place with the unbelievers. Let me skip a verse. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. And I have come to bring fire on earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to go undergo. Um, and then he says, they will be divided against father, against son, and son against father, and mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. And he goes on. But listen to that verse again. Let me go back to the top. 
He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. That servant that doesn't, it's not doing what they're supposed to do, when I come back, that, it'll be cut to pieces. In chapter 25 of Matthew, it's probably a pretty famous one, um, passage about the people that give water to the least of these and go visit people in prison and kind of help the needy, give food to the poor. And, and he says, those people I'll give the right to enter. And he says, the ones who don't, I'll say, depart from me. And, and just, you're gone. Like, there's eternal things hanging in the balance. And eternal life has already begun. And when you come to me, it's going to be really black and white what goes on. So why, why are we talking about that? Um, number one, when you get to heaven, you don't see St. Peter. Okay? That's, that came up in Catholic history. And it came up because in the Catholic Church, um, St. Peter was said to have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Um, the keys in terms of what he forgives on earth is going to be forgiven. What he, what he like binds up on earth will be bound up. So it's, he has the, the divine authority, and that, that authority is in the keys. His keys to the kingdom of heaven. Um, that's the Catholic traditional view. And so from that, we get St. Peter standing at the gates of heaven with the keys in some sense, telling people, Yes, you get in, or no, you don't get in. Okay? What's true about heaven is you don't run into St. Peter, and there's no joke about it. Who you run into is Jesus. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Matthew chapter 7, he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. On that, he goes, on that day, when, when you come to heaven, you're not going to see Peter, you're going to see me. And not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, like, hey, Jesus... Like, not everyone who thinks they know me is going to get in. But only who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So this good servant that hears from the Master does the will, like, because it's important and is obedient to that and serves well. That person's going to get in heaven. This person that was just chilling because he thought he was in the house of God. But you know what? It's going to be a long time. Like, I'm, I'm going to die when I'm 80. You know, I'm, I'm going to college. You know, I could be a good Christian when I'm 30. You know, every other Christian I know, like, went and sowed their wild oats and screwed around and whatever. So, you know, I'm just going to live for myself, suck the marrow out of life, make it all about pleasure. You know, when I retire, when I make my money, when I make myself good and secure, when I'm, like, you know, married with kids and I'm not cool anymore, like, I'll become a good Christian then. But, you know, that's so far off. And you know what? If I get to heaven, I'll just be like, oh, I went to church. I called myself a Christian. I took your name, Jesus. I, w I was in that house. And Jesus is like, not anyone. It's not just about knowing who I am. You could have a PhD in George Bush studies. You could know the name of his dogs from the time he was eight on. But some guy from Texas that met him two weeks ago, and they struck it off, and he doesn't even know what W stands for or whatever in the middle of his name, is going to get by. Is going to get by the guard, the the so the so screw the, the whatever guys, Secret Service is going to get by the Secret Service and hang out with George Bush, because he knows him. See, there's there's a relationship there. And we fall into this trap of thinking we know God when we know something about God. I, I can quote you Bible verses. I know the books of the Bible. I know why churches are the way they are. I have all this knowledge. I went to camps when I was a kid. I, I did spiritual things. I know Jesus' names of his dogs from the time he was eight on. Like, I know him. I'm cool. When I get to heaven, I'll say, hey, bro. Jesus is going to say, I don't care. This is why he was talking about the Pharisees here, the people that, the religious people that knew it all. That's not good enough. You weren't with me, working with me, listening to what I said and actually doing it. Like, what I really cared about, showing that you, you respected me and honored me and that it meant something to you that I cared about this stuff. So Jesus says, not everyone who gets to heaven and says, Lord, Lord, will I let in. He will say to some, depart from me. It's not all pie in the sky. There's a harshness to it. When I 
became a Christian, the most amazing thing that I realized was that the Jesus that I'd heard from all the youth pastors that I'd been around, if I went to a kid's camp here or a high school camp there, the Jesus I heard from preachers looked nothing like the Jesus I see in Scripture. Looked nothing like the Jesus. The Jesus in Scripture ain't no joke. I get the question a lot, how come Jesus doesn't match the God of the Old, Old Testament? The actual answer is the question's false. The question's false. Um, you see Jesus in the New Testament talking about cutting people to bits. <laughs> he talks about sending people um, to hell. He talks about, um, I'm going to take and send them to hell. Um, there's parts in the New Testament that we don't bring into our Jesus discussion. We bring in all the love stuff because it's spiritual. We don't bring in the eternal stuff, um, the hardcore black and white difficult talk of Jesus because it's on the periphery. So in John 6, we see this. Um, a bunch of people coming around and wanting to be spiritual and wanting to be where Jesus was. They were saying, feed us again. And, and Jesus says, you don't get it. I'm sent from heaven. I'm not here to like, make you warm and well-fed and to feed your bellies that way. Like That's cool and all. I'm here because there's this eternal thing going on. okay? And you need to come and... Take from me. And unless you take from me, you will have no part in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus and John the Baptist both said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, so, so Jesus is saying this to these guys. And they're like, you know what? Where, where's our sign? You're, you're asking a lot of objective reality in the middle here. You're demanding a lot of us. You want us to have this certain perspective on life. Well, who's to say that you're going to really deliver, that, that you really are authority? You know what? Moses with our forefathers, he brought manna. It was like actually a little wafer food from heaven down, and they ate on that, and that was a sign, you see. So what's your sign? You know what Jesus says? See, I'm the manna. I'm the manna. Eat me. I'm the thing coming down from God that you're supposed to eat that's going to sustain you, that's going to bring you along into the kingdom of heaven. He goes, look, I'll go right to the straight, to the nitty-gritty, to the difficult, to the hardcore, not mamby-pamby. Eat me. Eat my body and drink my blood. And you got a bunch of Jews that blood is, is, is like, if you're even around it, it's, it's not kosher. Like, you have to go get cleansed. And, and here's this guy telling them this, and they're like, okay, this is weird teaching is weird and they left so many of them left that jesus said to the ones that remained like okay sure you guys don't want to leave too okay so here's my my thing with it when we put spirituality in the middle we can gather a crowd and we can make them all really happy because we all love experience we all love ourselves we all love answers that are going to make us feel better. And the subjective allows for us to, to make a large group of people feel really happy. Experience spirituality. So Jesus has a crowd. And he takes this out from the middle. And he, he grabs the eternal perspective. And he puts it in the middle. And he says, eat me. We're not playing games here, guys. It's not all about feeling good. It's not all about like winning, and it's not all about like following me because like I'm this or that or the other, and it's gonna be better for your experience. Like I'm talking about eternal things. You have to take me all the way as king, like as Lord, as the thing that's the, the link, the way between you and heaven. And and they're like, oh, okay, wow, Jesus, you just took it to a whole new level. And they bailed. A lot of them bailed. Most of them bailed. If we put the eternal perspective in the middle of a church crowd, guess what? Here's what I know. I know that it will be unpopular. Because it's, it's not all feel good. It's not all comfortable. It calls us to make certain sacrifices or to rethink our life, which is, creates tension. And what I know is that we as a church have taken this objective stuff out and put it on the periphery. You know, in, in our day and age, talking about death is not a regular thing. So therefore, heaven and hell are not regular things. In the Reformation time, um, Montaigne, who was, wrote in the 1500s, he was a French philosopher, not a Christian, he's a skeptic, but he wrote 
the essays, which meant attempts. And he created that as a genre, like the essay. Like Montaigne created that. He was obsessed with death. Obsessed with it because every hangnail could, t- could cost you your life, like if you got an infection. People you loved, people in childbirth, people are dying. And so the eternal was all around. Luther, like, lived in a world where those were the dominant questions. Like, life is small and transitory. If you're lucky, you get to live to 70 or 80. But, but death is big. In our culture, we take old people and we hide them. In retired living, 55 plus, you know, like, or something like that. We, we don't talk about death. We don't enjoy it. It's awkward. It's sticky. And we've begun to get skeptical whether there is this thing called the afterlife. We don't even know if we really believe in it. But you know what? If Christianity will make my life better, it doesn't even really matter about the afterlife. I'll deal with that when I get there. And if there is no afterlife, at least my life was pretty good. You know, I mean, at least I kind of still win. So let me hedge my bets. I won't sacrifice too much. Um, I'll just take these principles out of Christianity that help me, like, have a better life and more fulfilled and satisfied. Um, But I really don't want to think about heaven or talk about it. It's really awkward. Richard Niebuhr said this, like, 50 years ago. He said, he summarized the creed of an easygoing American Christianity that has has come to pass. And he, he summarized it this way. It's a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. We have lost the ability to talk about the eternal because it feels morbid. It rains on the parade. It affects our day. It's not as, our day isn't as fun anymore. Like, it's a killjoy. Like, Jesus, why did you have to get so heavy and preachy? And we, were, we, were, we were enjoying, like, hanging around you. Why did you have to take it to that next level? But Jesus came not to just make our lives more comfortable. He did come to save sinners. He did come to die on a cross. He did come to be a way, a, a legitimate, objective way for us to come into the kingdom of heaven and to, to have this eternal life that God wanted for us to have. It could be argued that this backdrop of heaven and hell and death really undergirds all of Scripture. That it's really beneath all of it. If we were to go with Matthew 7 and take it a couple verses further, Jesus talks about the foolish guy building on sand and the wise guy building on a rock. And what do you think he's talking about? He's talking about your life. He's talking about the guy who's building on sand is cutting corners and saying, I'll deal with that stuff someday. Right now I'm just going to throw it together because it's easy and, and I'm all about eating, drinking, and being merry. And that doesn't mean it's sin to drink, by the way. I don't want to get into that trap. It just means it's an attitude of comfort and just denying the eternal And so we're just going to slap it together. And Jesus is like, how much smarter is the guy who did the more difficult thing, but built his life on this rock and built it on eternal, like, perspectives and principles. And he actually took God at face value. When God said do this, he actually did that, even if it was work. Even if other people were being lazy or just trying to be pleasure-filled, and even if he felt like he was missing out, it says in Proverbs, don't envy the wicked. What's one of the the biggest things that that causes us to walk away from what we should be doing to, like, run over here? We don't like missing out. I mean, we really struggle with that, looking over and saying, how come they're getting these big scoops of ice cream? It's not fair. I'm having to build on this rock, and it's hard, and I got, like, blisters on my hands, and it's going slow, and... They're eating ice cream. I want to eat ice cream too. Let me do both. I'll come over here, and then later in life, I'll come over here. And, and if there doesn't turn out to be a God, you know what? I, I did both, and, and so I hedged my bets. We, we do that. I did that. Maybe you've done that. I mean, that's what we do. And Jesus is saying, oh, you have little faith. If you just knew, if you just trusted, you would look at that, turn, turn away from it and say, I don't want any of that foolishness. Here is where truth is. Here is where Christ is. Yeah, it's not for everybody, but I believe. And so I'm going to be wise and I'm going to build my life differently. And you know what? Um, we're not going to build a big church this way. 
I mean, some of you might not be back next week, you know, or your friend might not. But every once in a while, you know what, we got to actually say it the way it is. I mean, that's what Jesus did. See, Jesus wasn't just all about love, and the God of the Old Testament was all about wrath. In the Old Testament, we also see love. And in the New Testament, with Jesus who's love, we also see judgment. Okay, there's not as big of a difference as we've created because we pick and choose and project onto things. And it's fun for us, it's nice for us, but it doesn't really work. Let me just read a little bit of Psalm 90, and then we're going to end with a quote. And the band's going to come up, play a song, and we'll take the offering. Psalm 90, I'm not going to read the whole thing. You should really go home and read the whole thing. It's all about this tension about the, the, the difficulty of life and that it ain't no joke and everything else. I mean, it's this whole tension. But let me just read some excerpts. It says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men back to dust, saying, return to dust, O sons of men. And for a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. And may your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May, may the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. You know, Paul said in Philippians um, something I think we should all try and be able to say. He said this, If I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. I don't know whether to choose to live here or to like die now and go be with God. Like here... Here or there? Like, I don't know which to choose. And listen to what he says. I'm hard-pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And if we actually could say that, like, I'm obsessed with God. I'd rather be with God. That's so much better. This pales in comparison. Building my house on the sand pales in comparison. It'd be so much easier for us to say, well, if I got to stay, let me at least do what I'm supposed to do. Let me have a meaningful life. Let me give my life away. Like if I got to be here, God, use me. I mean, if we could just have that view of God to put things in perspective in the middle and have that just like be a part of our conversations, it would so change our decisions. And here's what D.L. Moody says. He says, someday you will read in the papers that Moody is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I was born of the flesh in 1837. I was born of the spirit in 1855. That which born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the spirit shall live forever. Shall live forever. Amen.